We want to help our nervous systems understand, like our conscious brain needs to understand why we're, f we're fleeing and that it's for a purpose, for survival and protection. If you've enjoyed our episode or the content that we provide on The Universe Is Your Therapist, check out our signature program, The Whole Health Lab. In The Whole Health Lab, we walk you through healing from trauma, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. If you're wondering if you have trauma, go to mendingtrauma.com slash quiz, take our quiz, and you'll be able to determine if trauma is affecting your life. If it is, and you find that you want to go further, we would love to be your guides as you recover from trauma. Hi, welcome back. How are you, Lena? I am good. How are you, sister? I'm good. I just had a kid come home from, <laughs> from school sick, so... But oh. it wouldn't be fall without without someone. Without yeah, it. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Got it. <laughs> so um, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We are excited to be here. It's been a hot minute since we've recorded together. So we thought since October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month that we would talk about domestic violence and how to know if we are in a relationship that could be characterized by intimate partner violence or domestic violence. Okay. So what different types of domestic violence are there? Cause this is um, really helpful information for people and something that I didn't learn until Kevin and I were in marriage therapy about 15 years ago. So explain to our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> And that came as a surprise that I was being aggressive in our marriage by some of the words I was using. And I had to, to change that. Yeah. It was very humbling. And um, I mean, it makes sense with how we were raised in a pretty violent environment. Um, but I was so rigid in my thinking that, oh, it's only hitting or physical violence that's abuse. So if I say a cuss word when I'm really angry at someone, that's not abuse. And the therapist was like, she said it's verbal violence. Yes. So explain to our listeners, because I, I had a huge learning curve for my own marriage and my own relationship in the, at that point. And, and good for you for being courageous and brave and humble enough to be able to take in what the therapist was teaching you. That's oh, awesome. Thanks. I, I mean... I would say I'm not a hundred percent, but no, I would say in the last five years, I'm about a hundred percent with not using any sort of verbal violence. But, um, that was, that took yeah. a long time for me to kind of subdue my anger when I felt really threatened. Yes. And I mean, Kevin wasn't actually threatening me. It was my nervous system. <laughs> you know, my brain felt threatened. Yes. Just to, to yeah, it be was, clear to our listeners. <laughs> it was the perception that your brain had of threat. Exactly. Yeah. Not that Kevin was posturing towards you, not that he was intimidating you. It was your nervous system saying that there was danger, even though there wasn't any. Exactly. Yeah. So there are so many different types of domestic abuse or intimate partner violence. They can include the obvious, which would be the hitting. Um, but one of the ones I just mentioned that a lot of people don't realize is the posturing or intimidation. And so it's the use of a um, stronger 
body type or a larger body type. It's what we used to call when I was working in residential treatment, we used to call it puffing up. So it's kind of this Mm -hmm. getting bigger. That is a form of intimate partner violence. There's sexual intimate partner violence. There are, um, there's financial, there's psychological. Uh, One of the things that I've seen more lately in the last five or 10 years is that both partners in the relationship have their own collection of trauma and it causes them to engage in a cycle inadvertently. They're not trying to. And so one will be particularly hypervigilant about perceived threat and they will have very large, strong reactions And that starts a cycle of the other partner becoming more fawn-like, more submissive. And it um, that's done for the partner that's being threatened, threatened. That partner is doing that to survive. And it's a learned response. And the, the, the thing that I see typically is that the partner who's being more violent, whether it's verbally, financially, physically, is often unaware that they're contributing immensely to the problem. They oftentimes see that the person who is um, their victim is the problem. And so they start a narrative in their head where if only, so if I were being um, violent to my partner, then my thoughts might be, if only he would do things the way I asked him to the first time, then I wouldn't have to get mad or I wouldn't have to yell or I wouldn't have to swear at him. And so it starts this whole cascade of dysfunction where the the people in the relationship are trying to um, both survive and one of them surviving by becoming more threatening. And the other one is surviving by becoming more um, submissive. That is really interesting. And so when you say that you've noticed it's a cycle, is that different than the cycle of violence that we learn about when, because as um, I'll explain in a little bit, um, I've had a lot of um, intimate <laughs> uh, acquaintance with domestic violence. And I remember when I was first getting help out of my first marriage, which was characterized by quite a bit of violence, I learned about the cycle of violence. So is this a different cycle that you're talking about? Or is it the cycle of violence where you have abuse, then regret, and then build up, and then abuse, regret, build up, I know that about eight years ago, there was a movement away from describing that as a cycle of violence. And so I don't know that I'm specifically identifying it that way. What I'm identifying is a pattern that develops where um, the nervous system gets really aroused. And so somebody has a big reaction and that arouses the nervous system of the partner and the partner in order to survive is trying to do something to either escape or make the, the dynamic different. And so then we get into this habitual pattern of when somebody gets big and loud, then we either fight back or we flee or we fawn, yeah. we submit And that's the pattern that I'm talking about. A lot of times when I'm working with couples, I call it a dance. Um, And Harriet Lerner 
decades ago, wrote a book called The Dance of Anger. Yeah, I read that when I was is, in treatment. Yeah. 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 And um, it's, it's really a type of dance. And so sometimes when I'm working with people, I encourage them to change the dance steps. Oh, interesting. Okay, so we've identified that domestic violence can be um, many different things physical, sexual, verbal, financial. There was one other. Intimidation. Yeah. Okay. So intimidation. So can you, can you, before we go to the, you know, how to change the steps of the dance, cause I think that's really important. Can you explain what financial violence would look like? Cause I think that's one that I haven't heard a lot about and is really intriguing. Sure. When What we know about trauma and what we know about perceived threat is that the brain naturally wants control. So when somebody feels threatened, there's oftentimes an attempt to exert control. It can happen in parent-child relationships, friendships, romantic relationships, uh, work relationships. And if you think about the attempt to control as abusive, that gives you more of of a, a an ability to say, is my partner withholding funds from me? Um, am I on some kind of allowance? Do I make 10 times less than my partner, but I'm contributing 50% of the um, costs? Um, do I have access to all of our financial information? Do I have access to bank accounts or credit cards that are in both of our names? And when those things aren't open and transparent, there is really high potential for abuse, financial abuse. It doesn't mean that people don't have their roles in their partnerships. So lots of times one partner will be in charge of the finances, and that's fine. It's when the partner in charge of the finances refuses information or access to the other partner that we have financial abuse. Okay. That is very, very helpful. And I was thinking about when we were growing up, and this is something our parents have been really transparent about um, since they got help about 25, 30 years ago. But we grew up in a household where our father controlled the finances. And it wasn't that our mother didn't have access, but they could, quote unquote, never afford what she wanted. And they could only, they only had a budget for what he wanted. And so it would show up by his hobbies and his interests being funded quite lavishly while she was driving a car that was pretty um, old and unsafe. Like I'm thinking about the blue station wagon. (laughs) I'm thinking about the green van. (laughs) Well, that was ugly, but... Yeah, it was really, I mean, and in the meantime, he's spending, you know, hundreds of thousands on his hobby. And um, so that to me, as you're speaking, that's definitely a form of financial abuse. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good, that's a very good description. And do you remember sometimes he'd come home with a brand new Cadillac and mom would be like, what? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And for our listeners to have full transparency, he also has bipolar disorder, which is, he has been medicated for, but at the time he was undiagnosed. And so those massive purchases, um, on the fly were part of his bipolar disorder as well. One of the symptoms. 
Yeah. And so what we have is this like marriage of mental illness with abuse, which yeah. doesn't necessarily have to go hand in hand. It can simply be a trauma response without the diagnosis of mental illness. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay. So this is really helpful, I think, to kind of broaden the scope of what domestic violence is, since this is Domestic Violence Month. And you talked about changing the dance when you're in a relationship where domestic violence is occurring. And I would love for you to explain how to how to change the steps. Before we do that, let me offer a caveat. If you are in a domestic violence relationship in which your life is being threatened regularly, then any kind of like therapy or attempts to talk things out are generally discouraged because the premise or the idea behind that is that the person who's the perpetrator is so dysregulated that no amount of logic or insight or awareness will change their behavior. So I'm not talking about when you and I are discussing this and I'm talking about changing the dance steps, I'm not talking about these extreme cases where people are daily in threat of their life. That's a great caveat. Yeah. One person I talked to yesterday was talking about doing laundry in the laundry room while her husband had his AK-40 in the family room, making sure she was doing the laundry correctly. I am not talking about changing those dance steps. Yes. That dance step is get the crap out of there if you, if you can. can. Yeah. But and, as we and in know, general, it takes seven attempts to leave a partner violent situation. And it's not because of weakness. It's because of the profound mental manipulation and the earlier trauma that allows the situation to feel comfortable. And I don't mean you feel comfortable being abused. I mean, the dynamic of your marriage mimics some earlier dynamic of your, your childhood. Yes. And yeah. let me, um, let me pivot really quick before we go to changing the dance steps and talk about my experience, um, with my first marriage, because I think this is a really good example of growing up in a violent environment and then unconsciously choosing a partner that also was violent. And so for, for what that looked like for me is even though I had gotten sober and I had done some therapy, I went into a marriage where the partner was very dominant, was very violent, but first was very emotionally abusive. Yes. Very, very manipulative, constantly criticizing, controlling, even to the point of counting how many times I chewed my food before I swallowed to let me know that I was chewing my food wrong. If I came out dressed in a particular outfit, it was go change your clothes. You don't look good. You look fat. It was very, very emotionally um, depleting to the point where, I mean, I, I was positive if I left, no one would ever love me again. Yes. And so that is what you're talking about is this, this psychological wearing down so that you're just, it's, it's impossible to think that you could ever be able to live without them or valued. Exactly. And in my case, um, he did make an attempt on my life. And even after that, I didn't leave him. It wasn't until, uh, my, mom saw the handprint 
bruises around my neck. And she called her brother, who's a doctor. And he said, you got to get her out of there because that I've only seen that on corpses. And so she and my dad actually came and moved me out of the house. And I was upset with them. Yes. Very common. That they were, quote unquote, forcing me to leave this situation. Yes. I, I actually remember more than one attempt on your life. I can remember you sharing a story that you were vacationing with several other couples. Oh, yeah. And he started um, hitting you with a frying pan or an iron or... I think it was an iron, but that yeah. was a different incident. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And the and the couples could hear, but nobody did anything, which is also not uncommon. Right. I'm sure it was very awkward for them. I mean, it was awkward for me yeah. <laughs> to have that spill out into more of a public, right? Yeah. And this was pre-OJ um, Simpson trial. And o- the OJ Simpson trial brought a tremendous amount of... Uh, it really spotlighted intimate partner violence in a way that had never been done before. And so my hope would be that anybody in a situation where you've been able to hear or witness domestic violence, my hope would be that you would call authorities. It's da- It can be dangerous to place yourself in the middle of the partner's because you can get injured as well, but call the authorities and make sure that everybody's safe in the home or the place that you are. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Obviously I was then able to get the help I needed. Um, but I, I'd also want to let our listeners know that when it did come time to choose another partner for me, it took so much effort to change my brain and be attracted to someone who was kind and loving and nurturing and not um, aggressive and not aggressive. Yeah. And it, it was painful. Um, so those, those old neuro pathways that run really deep from childhood can be overcome we can find our way into a relationship that is not violent, that is not abusive. It is extremely hard work. <laughs> and, um, and very uncomfortable, as you mentioned. It was very uncomfortable. I cried all the time while Kevin and I were dating because I couldn't figure out why. He was so nice to me. It was, it was almost a turnoff, right? Yeah. yeah. And so... Um, and, you know, sweet Kevin, he knows all of this. And so this isn't, you know, this isn't going to be a surprise to him. I mean, he was there. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I just want to reassure our listeners that there is hope. Yes. There absolutely is hope. And I think that's why I know that's why you and I are both so passionate about the work we do with trauma is because we grew up with trauma. We've seen trauma in our adult lives. Um, and here we are, not perfect, but living in non-abusive relationships, which is amazing. Yes. Yeah. I love that you're mentioning hope. One thing that I think is really valuable for our listeners to hear that are in situations in which they are being abused is that your brain in order to survive is probably telling you that it's your fault and you can do something to change it. And so that's one of the reasons why people have a hard time leaving because there's this litany of if only, 
if only I made the dinner correctly, if only I weighed 10 pounds less, if only I didn't forget to put the laundry in the dryer, if only I, and it goes on and on and on. And so the brain is trying to protect us by thinking that we can control it somehow, but we can't. And so in the meantime, if you know that it takes an average of seven times to leave a domestically violent partnership, then learn how to notice without judging what's happening for you and really work on not being self-critical. What's wrong with me? Why am I so weak? How can I keep putting up with this? We keep putting up with it because it's now a memorized neuropathway and because there's oftentimes love involved. And, and, and additionally, it's not just the love, it's the fact that we have hope and there are some good times. And so um, the good times act is what we call intermittent reinforcement, where every once in a while, something will go great. And that is so relieving to the, to the uh, autonomic nervous system that it ends up hyper-focusing on that instead of all the other times that have been less than great or very terrifying. That is really interesting and helpful information. So when, when you talk about changing the dance steps, it sounds like this first step is becoming non-critically aware. Yes, or what yes. we call benevolently curious, curious about the relationship pattern. Right, exactly. So you're in this relationship pattern through no conscious choice of your own. So a lot of times friends and family will say, but you know, you know she's violent or you know he's violent. So now you're making a conscious choice to stay. And I would really argue strongly against that. Because what's not being considered is the subconscious neuropathways, those wiring, the wiring networks that are so strong that make this dysfunctional dynamic feel comfortable. And so one of the best things we can do when we're trying to get out of difficult situations, whether they're from being victimized or our own making, is to learn how to observe what's happening and observe our behavior without judging it and just be really lovingly curious because that's when we can start setting up new neural pathways. When we are hypercritical of ourselves, we are stuck in those same neural pathways. And we were talking in our program on uh, Wednesday night in Community Connection. And uh, one of the things that we talked about was the idea that when we have had um, childhood dynamics like this, that it is oftentimes, it often takes us years to figure out that we keep picking the same person, but in different skin. And that's just part of, that's actually, it's a symptom of trauma. That makes so much sense. And so what does that look like to be loving to yourself in the midst of that? Like if you are doing the laundry and your partner has a gun in the next room to make sure you're doing the laundry correctly, how, what does it look like to be benevolently curious? You can't do it in that moment. Okay. Because the threat is too present. And so it involves paying attention later. Okay. When you're stuck in a, in a, um, cycle of beating yourself up. I should have done it faster or whatever. So it's whenever you are actually self-critical, you start yeah. to get curious. Yes. 
about where the criticism's coming from or? It can be that because it's an internalized, it's a voice of an abuser that's been internalized. So if you had parents who were even occasionally abusive, you have a voice in your head that's been internalized and that is your inner critic. And its job is to make sure you never make a mistake. You never embarrass yourself. You never slip up. And so the inner critic is very busy trying to protect you. And so the idea is less about where the voice is coming from. I can tell you where it's coming from. It's coming from a past abusive relationship. It's more about noticing that that inner critic has a good intention. Oh, that is really interesting. Yes, that's part of internal family systems. So if we look at the internal critic... Um, it's, it's actually considered a protector because it's trying to prevent anything bad from happening by making you perfect. But that's a fallacy because when you're in an intimate partner, violent relationship, you don't have control over the violence. And so the brain is fascinating. It does all sorts of wonky things. So we're just paying attention to what our brain is telling us. And we're noticing that it's a thought. And we're noticing that that part is really trying to make sure that we are as safe as can be, that our behavior isn't problematic to our partner. And what's the next step for changing the dance steps after we're using benevolent curiosity? Yes. Um, One way that I explain it to people is you don't accept the invitation to dance the old dance. And this can look a couple of different ways. So when somebody is being aggressive with you, if your nervous system tends to respond and fight, then one way of changing the dance step is to say something like, I don't, I'm not able to talk about this right now. Or it can be, I know I usually argue with you in these situations, but I'm going to remove myself right now. Or it can be, I don't think a good, I don't think anything is good going to come out of this conversation or this argument. So there are a lot of different ways to to refuse the invitation to the old dance. If you tend to flee, if flight is your um, response, then we want to help our nervous systems understand, like our conscious brain needs to understand why we're we're fleeing and that it's for a purpose for survival and protection. And that when we are in flight, it's the only thing we can do in that moment. And so then later we want to come back and say, I'd like to talk about this. Let's find a way to do it. Maybe we talk with a mediator, somebody who we both trust or love, or we go see professional. And we talk about this in a way that allows us both to be heard and both of our concerns to be valued. The submitting, same thing. The fawn response is that's just what you're going to do. And then later when you realize what, you, what you've done, what your autonomic nervous system has required, is you spend some time noticing that without judgment. And then you um, take some steps to um, keep working on your sense of self and healing your trauma so that you have a generally calmer nervous system. And so that flight is not the only option open to you. So those are just some ideas. 
Yeah, that's really, really helpful. I know that we do have a few people in our program, the whole health lab, who have um, experienced domestic violence in different forms and that it is linked to their earlier childhood trauma. And um, of course, that was my situation as well. So one of the things I think is just really helpful to understand, especially this month, is knowing what it is, knowing that it's, if you're not being hit, that doesn't mean there's not an issue of abuse in the relationship. And so understanding that, and then what helped me the most, and I see what's helping the people in our program the most is dealing with the core trauma, going back and dealing with what happened, not rehashing it over and over and over, but examining it like, wow, that's, that did happen, acknowledging it and then working through it with the different tools that we teach in the program. So I know that change is possible. Getting out of these relationships is absolutely possible. Choosing new dynamics is absolutely possible. And in the interim, um, choosing new dance steps is yes. absolutely possible. So thank absolutely. you for that awesome yes. explanation. You are very welcome. And the the um, types of abuse I mis- mentioned in the beginning, those aren't exclusive. There are additional types of abuse. Um, so whatever happens, know that it's not your fault. People will blame you, especially the perpetrator. Um, but it's not your fault. Nobody raises their hand in their conscious mind and says, I'd really like to be terrorized for the next seven months, seven years, 17 years by this relationship. Nobody does that. Nor is it your fault when you are the perpetrator necessarily. Right. You're responsible for your actions. But that dynamic is, is well laid in your brain. Yeah. And I like the word and instead of but, because you, you a hundred percent are responsible for your behavior. If you find that you are the abuser in a relationship, it's important that you recognize that those patterns of behavior were laid down in your childhood and that, um, you have the gift of being the person, the one who can change that wiring so that you can have more healthy, fulfilling relationships. And so you don't harm others or yourself. Absolutely. Well, and I think what's so interesting is we live in a world where it's very polarized. So I'm either a victim of domestic violence or I'm a perpetrator. And what I'm aware of is in my own life history, I was a victim as a child. I went into a marriage where I was victimized. But in my current marriage, I was the one the therapist was saying, that's verbal violence. You can't yell like that and, and curse and expect that that's not going to, you know, affect the relationship in a very negative, unsafe way. And so that was really hard for me to grapple with that. Um, I could be both a former victim of domestic violence and a perpetrator unwittingly. Yes. Right. But Mm -hmm. I, I still had to solve that. I still had to take responsibility for that and um, decide that that's not the type of marriage I wanted. I I didn't want to be the person yelling and cursing and going out of my window of tolerance and causing that dynamic. So it's, I, I guess I love anything that 
brings nuance into a conversation. And so I appreciate the, the both and of mm-hmm. this. Yeah. I and mean, that's a great clarification names. This wraps up this episode. One of the things we want to encourage you to do is if you are wondering if you have early trauma or even trauma that's happened in your adult life that's kind of led you into this path of either an unhealthy dynamic in a relationship or actually abuse, um, go to take our quiz. We ha- we designed a quiz that will help you understand um, whether you've had trauma or not. And it's um, mendingtrauma.com slash quiz. But that will help you and kind of guide you to determine if um, that's something you want to take a look at, right? So you may find you had trauma and it you might not feel like taking a look at it right now. But what I'm, what I am aware of is that my past trauma, it kind of, it's like a ghost that haunts me with my current behaviors. And until I (laughs) take a look at it, those behaviors that I don't really like persist. So, uh, but it's all on our own timeline. Agency is very important in this. Absolutely. Yep. So thanks again for joining us and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Universe is Your Therapist this week. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can find us at Mending Trauma on Instagram, as well as MendingTrauma.com, our website. And if you're enjoying our content, we'd love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We'll see you all next week.